Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends. Today we're going to contemplate together a massive research project that has gotten a lot of press over the past few months. I'm going to say at the outset that we're going to need two contemplations for this. I'm going to lay out some of the fascinating findings, but then we're going to look at the deeper story. We want to frame the deeper story and then go into the deeper story. Now, this study, maybe you've heard about it. It's an impressive study. The longest scientific study of adult development conducted across decades. It started way back in 1938. It began with three classes, three college undergraduate classes, a total of 268 Harvard-educated men, most of whom came from the classes graduating in 1942, 1943, and 1944. Now, Harvard was a boys-only club back then, so it's only men, white men, The study later got a cohort from inner-city Boston so that they could balance the privilege of the Harvard participants with some regular folk. And then the study later included the wives and children of some of the original participants, which means it included women. And they collected a lot of data through questionnaires every two years, medical records every five years, and personal interviews once a decade. It's referred to as the Grant Study sometimes, or just the Harvard Study for short. It's the Harvard Study. They do a lot of studies at Harvard, but it's the Harvard Study of Adult Development. And it's gotten several rounds of press, most recently because yet another book relating some of the key findings to a general audience has come out, and a few others have already appeared The study gives us a lot to think about in relation to the causes and conditions of happiness and well-being over the full course of our lifetime. However, all this press coverage seems to have missed something incredibly vital and far-reaching in this study. Even the books have failed to make it clear. And in a way, we could suggest the lead researchers of the study themselves missed this finding. Either they didn't notice it, didn't fully grok it or understand it, or didn't understand how crucial it is. This unstated finding is the most important finding about happiness and a meaningful and fulfilling life that we have. Before we get to it, we should take a few moments to reflect on the interesting findings, at least some of them, that the books have rightfully sought to share with us. So the press is is not all wasted, it just has a lot of downsides, I think. The latest book comes from Robert Waldinger, who's the current director of the study, and Mark Schultz, the associate director, and they call their book The Good Life. And the idea is that their study, because they looked at what makes us happy and healthy, over the course of our lives, well, that should tell us something about the good life. Now, that phrase, the good life, is indigenous to philosophy because that's the kind of life promised by the wisdom traditions of the world. That's why we bother listening to these sages because they promise to show us the good life, how to achieve it. And I think the researchers recognize that The authors thankfully acknowledge something very essential here. Quote, science is not the only area of human knowledge that has something to say about the good life. In fact, science is the newcomer. That's what the authors write. Well, who's been at it longer? The authors admit. Quote, the ancients beat us to it. End quote. And they, of course, mean philosophers, saints, sages, yogis, priestesses, and others have already laid out everything we really need to know about cultivating the good life. And in fact, the book just proves that. It's a sort of ironic twist. 
And as the authors point out about these philosophers, saints, sages, yogis, priestesses, and others, the authors say, quote, their wisdom is our inheritance and we should take advantage of it, close quote. Of course, we don't do that. It's a wasted inheritance. It's our greatest cultural treasure, but we waste this inheritance. And these authors offer us nothing essential that the wisdom traditions of the world don't teach in far more practical terms. And I'm not just talking about a few ancient Greeks. I appreciate deeply my own lineage, but we're talking about traditions around the world, including indigenous traditions. And many anthropologists have acknowledged this. Uh, there are many anthropologists who have felt that indigenous groups that they were able to live with seemed happier than anybody in the dominant culture, that the individuals just in general seemed much happier. And the fact that we effectively shun this supreme inheritance creates serious problems for us all, obviously, if what they teach is the good life and we don't receive that inheritance, receive those teachings, then what are we going to be left with? Well, something less than good, something potentially catastrophic at this stage. As the authors put it, with their own emphasis, they do italicize this, quote, people are terrible at knowing what is good for them, end quote. And this also means we're terrible about knowing what's bad for us. All told, we kind of suck at realizing the good life. So we end up, well, take a look at the state of the world. This is how we end up. And a deeper problem lurks here. Our cultural context, especially if you're in the dominant culture or you've been affected by it or infected by it, it has affected the whole planet at this point, this cultural context offers no reliable support for coming to know what's good for us. And, and what I mean by if you've been affected or infected by it is that you're, all of us have lineages ultimately that trace back to indigenous peoples, and all of us have lineages with wonderful wisdom teachings. But that doesn't mean we have easy access to it uh, in the current context. It doesn't mean that we really have the support we need to come to know what's good for us, how to realize the good life. And this should come across as rather shocking, all the more so when we consider the fact that this issue dates back to the earliest history of philosophy as we know it in the dominant culture. Philosophy arose as a gesture of rebirth in various cultures, promising the good life precisely because those cultures started to fail at doing so themselves, and that's why we so desperately need philosophy today. Socrates tried to wake his culture up to the fact that when people seem to have become terrible at knowing what's good for them, it means the culture has a major disorder, a kind of illness that will eventually bring the culture to collapse. The path of healing requires, among other things, a revitalization of education an education rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty. His fellow citizens killed him for pointing this out. It's quite a nuisance to hear something like that. And our current leaders, and that's in quote, air quotes leaders, in business, politics, and culture, they want nothing to do with such a suggestion. Even though the Harvard study supports what Socrates said, the only difference is that if we don't listen to Socrates now, it could have tragic consequences at a global scale. He was saying, hey, the culture's got a problem because people don't know how to realize the good life, and Athenian culture came to an end. We might think that that was just natural and had nothing to do with what Socrates was talking about. He didn't think so. And if we continue not to listen, the collapse is not a city. It's not just a, a nation but it could be the collapse of the conditions of life as we've known them, the collapse of hum human life as we have become used to it. Species might not go extinct, but we could have a really, really hard time ahead of us. 
Now, Waldinger and Schultz acknowledge, in their own way, that things haven't changed since the time of Socrates. We have done very little in terms of rooting our culture in wisdom, love, and beauty, and thus the culture does little to empower people to fully realize for themselves what is truly good for them and to make that a reality. Now, here's how the authors put it, quote, The good life may be a central concern for most people, but it is not the central concern of most modern societies. Life today is a haze of competing social, political, and cultural priorities, some of which have very little to do with improving people's lives. The modern world prioritizes many things ahead of the lived experience of human beings. End quote. We should all have to pick our jaws up off the floor, I think, after reading something like that, when you really think about it and let it sink in. We've got nothing but our experience. And the dominant culture effectively represses this spiritual fact, seeking only to give us experiences, but not a vitalizing experience of life. I mean, isn't this an amazing suggestion, what they're saying? We all, as individuals, as feeling people, as people with hearts and sensitivity and intelligence, we have the a central concern is the good life. That's what we want, but not the societies. That's just an astonishing thing to recognize. And I'm gesturing here to a contrast between experiences, like in quote, it, this idea that we're going to go and have an experience, you know, and the real experience of life. There's a, there's a distinction there. It doesn't seem to be, but that's just what the culture does to us. It's very similar to the tension that we find between value and values. The economy has to do with value and experiences, while life itself has to do with values and experience. What we really value, our values, our highest values, love, learning, community, family. But those are things that we don't think have a value. The marketplace, all it knows how to do is to value things, right? We, we would say that the love we have for our children is priceless. So if we really value family, if that's one of our real values, then we don't think that the economy can account for that. There's no way to value that in an economic sense. And the experience of love is something that's priceless, and it's not the kind of experiences that we can purchase. Everyone's trying to sell us experiences. The experience of hanging out with horses, the experience of going to this place, that place, this retreat, that whatever it might be. And everything has become commodified experiences, but we're missing the experience of life. And everything has a price tag on it, but then our values get lost in all this valuing. I know that's a little subtle. Maybe it'll make more sense as we go along. Now, Waddinger and Schultz have a second obstacle to the good life that they mentioned. So the first one is that our society doesn't care about the good life for us. It, it cares about what it can sell us, including experiences. It doesn't really care whether we have a really rich, good experience of life. And so that's the first obstacle. Society doesn't care about your good life. The second one is this one. And here's another quote from their book. Our brains, the most sophisticated and mysterious system in the known universe, often mislead us in our quest for lasting pleasure and satisfaction. We may be capable of extraordinary feats of intellect and creativity. We may have mapped the human genome and walked on the moon. But when it comes to making decisions about our lives, we humans are often bad at knowing what is good for us. Common sense in this area of life is not so sensible. It's very difficult to figure out what really matters. Now, the thing that I think is so important but is missing in the study is here in this quote. It, there's already a hint of it. And we can see 
something that doesn't quite make sense. Their suggestion here is that the brain is the most sophisticated and mysterious system in the known universe, but brains don't occur by themselves. They are not a system. A brain is not a system. There's nobody walking around using only their brain. So what are the systems that we actually have? What are the systems? Because, for instance, Earth herself is a, is a large system, if we accept the Gaian hypothesis. But even if we don't, the Amazon rainforest is a system. And that's a very complex system that has a bunch of human brains inside of it. So anywhere you live is a system with multiple human brains and bodies and eyeballs and fingers and all the rest of it. And so there's a, the confusion that the authors have is coming across here. But here's the other thing. It's that they're saying it's very difficult to figure out what really matters. And uh, is it is it that difficult? The wisdom traditions arose, we could say, as a response to both of these issues. And we kind of suggested this little philosophy emerges in some cases as a countercultural current in the context of a culture that has lost its way. So when your society stops really caring about the good life for you, really like thinking about it and asking, well, what is a really a good life? It's not to be a stockbroker. For, according to many wisdom traditions, they would never imagine that that's what a good life is or to work at Walmart or a lot of the things that we do that are not such great jobs, right? We have a lot of ridiculous jobs that would be better if no one did them. And so the society doesn't care about the good life, so then philosophy has to come in and say, well, you know, we need to care about it. And then you have this question of, well, people are not good at, at it. Even if society cared, you might say that people are still bad at it, and philosophy is also a response to that. It sort of disagrees. It, I think many philosophers believe once the culture starts to get rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty, then people will be much better at knowing what's good for them. It won't be as hard as we think it is. Now, you might have a culture that's rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty, and then philosophy doesn't need to be a countercurrent, you know, a correction. Philosophy is just how we do things. That's how it always is. If we have a bad philosophy, then we do things in not such a great way. So in the best case, we have a culture in which we don't find the common or mainstream ways of doing things to exhibit a significantly awful, that is, an unskillful or unrealistic philosophy of life. In, in the, the best case, we have a general philosophies in our culture that help us to know what the good life is, and we're able to do it. So here we are, 85 years of work, 85 years the study's been running. What did the researchers figure out about what really matters? Was it difficult for them to figure out? Well, from one perspective, it just doesn't seem very tricky. Waldinger and Schultz tell us, quote, good relationships keep us healthier and happier, period. That's what they discovered. 85 years of work. Waldinger's predecessor, George Valent, he put it a little more skillfully a few years back when he published his book. At that time, it was 10 years ago. And he was summing up what he thought the study found. And here's how he put it, quote, The 75 years and $20 million expended on the grant study points to a straightforward five-word conclusion. Happiness is love. Full stop. I love that he decided it would be five words. He could have said three words. But he really wanted to put a point on it, didn't he? And I think it was probably worthwhile when you think about it, because that's a fairly radical and revolutionary suggestion. Imagine the changes we would need to make in order to honor this good news, this gospel of love. And before we imagine those changes, let's consider a few revelations from the gospel of love. We're considering these ahead of the data that we will we'll consider some of the you know real findings that uh, Valent actually reported. We'll go with him. We'll talk about some of the things from Waldinger and Schultz as well, maybe. But we could put some of the findings and their implications as follows. And this will help us to see how radical this is. First revelation in the gospel of love. This is not the 
primary. I don't mean this is the number one most important, but it's the first one we're going to consider. Okay, so revelations from the gospel of love. Here's one of them. Talent and hard work are not sufficient for achieving conventional success. Talent and hard work are not sufficient. That's not enough. Two, talent and hard work are not even necessary for achieving conventional success. Three, conventional success, and by that I mean money, fame, power, comfort, pleasure, possessions. Conventional success isn't real success. We can be conventionally successful, but still not fully realized in our most profound potentials, the ones that bring us true peace, true happiness, true well-being. And we can be conventionally unsuccessful, but still quite realized, maybe even in some cases fully realized in our most profound potentials. And the fourth element that's important in a gospel of love, a revolutionary gospel of love, is that balanced effort and cultivated talent or skill play a decisive role in real success, namely a life of wisdom, love, and beauty, a life of profound mystery, meaning, and purpose. Now, these are not the exact findings. As I said, we're going to go over the findings, but these are implied in the findings. And again, the most important summary is valence. Happiness is love, full stop. Now, we can maybe imagine some of the changes we would need to make in order to honor this gospel of love. It upends our understanding of the good life, at least the one we practice. A lot of us might say, oh yeah, you know, all you need is love, right? We got, we got that song, we got so many tunes about love, and we know it's important, but we don't live like it's important. It's not the soil of the culture. And as the gospel of love here upends our understanding of the good life, it puts our understanding of the good life in accord with the teachings of the wisdom traditions, including the teachings of Plato and Socrates, who taught that the path to wisdom and the good life is love. And the path of love is wisdom. So we're, that's what we're doing with this study. We're just going back to Plato. And it's the very meaning of the word that Plato gave us, philosophy. Philosophia means love, philo, wisdom, sophia. That word means love wisdom. And we find, if we look at the Harvard study, we consider it carefully, we find that we need the wisdom traditions, because unlike the Harvard study, those traditions teach us that love is a skill, that we can cultivate whatever our age, and they teach us how to cultivate it. That's not in the Harvard study. How? Happiness is love. Well, what do I do? How do I cultivate it? So he didn't say happiness is love and love is a skill you can learn. He said happiness is love full stop. That's not enough. (laughs) I mean, that'd be great, right? If wishes were nickels, then we'd be billionaires. So, not that I want a money analogy. I just didn't want to say if wishes were horses, um, except that would be fine too. I'd be fine with that. If wishes were horses, we'd have as many horses as we should on Turtle Island. All right. So, the wisdom traditions teach us that love arises in non-duality with wisdom. A limit in our wisdom marks off a limit in our love. And a limit in our love marks off a limit in our wisdom. So George Valen could have said, happiness is wisdom. The good life is wisdom. Full stop. And this also applies with beauty, because wisdom, love, and beauty come totally interwoven. Now this wouldn't just mean you can paint paintings and be happy. Beauty in the wisdom traditions is richer than the merely aesthetic or the merely artistic. I don't mean to insult the arts. It's just that you can be an incredible artist and not very wise and, in fact, not very loving either. You can be abusive to people in your life. So beauty is just a richer uh, concept in the wisdom traditions, but it would include 
I think what we understand as creativity and aesthetic appreciation and aesthetic experience. And importantly, again, the wisdom traditions offer us an astonishing array of practices, concrete practices for helping us realize the good life, realize true peace, true happiness, true love, meaning, fulfillment, by means of the practice and realization of wisdom, love, and beauty. So we're just back at philosophy. That's, I, that's a very important thing. It's an important finding that really isn't discussed. That's not the, the big one that we want to get at, but it's a very important finding that is just not clear, that we are back at philosophy still waiting for science to play catch-up because the scientists have nothing much to teach us about how to live our lives as an act of love, how to bring love to fruition in our lives moment to moment, season to season. The wisdom traditions can help us love better and live better far more effectively than anything we have in dominant culture science. It's not that science is useless. Not that at all. It's a lot of nice things that we've discovered since the time of the ancient Greeks. It's just that there's a lot that's still missing and a lot that we need to learn. Now, this state of affairs came about in no small part because of a movement within what we refer to as science to abandon philosophy and thus to make the love of wisdom and the wisdom of love something largely absent from our central practice of knowledge or knowing. Science shunned our supreme inheritance. And we can only fully recover it if we inquire into the really big issue, the crucial finding. Our science and our society needs to catch up with most urgently the one that no one emphasizes when talking about this big Harvard study on adult development and our happiness and our well-being. So they're leaving out the big finding. To take steps toward this crucial finding, we're going to get, get at it. But, but first, before we get there, this, uh, this is a crucial finding, not just of the wisdom traditions, but again, it is now a finding of our science. Our science is catching up. It's just not in this study. It's in other sciences in its own way. But before we get to this crucial finding, we want to look at a few of the more intriguing findings from the study as Valent detailed it in one of his books. And his, that his final book was called The Triumphs of Experience. And I want to go over this because it's fascinating stuff. You're going to love this. You're going to love hearing about some of this. They found out so many interesting things that that even if we took them seriously, just, okay, we look at these findings and, and we'd say we're going to take this seriously, it would have a huge impact on how we organized our society, let alone the more subtle or hidden yet most important finding that they verified, which we're going to get to. Okay. Now, one of the things they found is that IQ, you know, the famous intelligence quotient that the dominant culture likes so much, IQ beyond about 110 as well as body type and even class, that is your social status, your class in society, that had little impact on maximum earnings or happiness. That, you, know, you would think that, well, it's because I'm so smart that I'm successful, people might think. But 110 is only one standard deviation. About Back then, at that time, 100 would have been about the average. So 110 was not, it's, that's not super sharp. Genius at that time would, would have been somewhere in the 120s, I, I would imagine. So you didn't have to be a genius. You didn't have to be really even close to genius. Body type, no. And class, th that didn't really have a, an impact on maximum earnings or happiness. But they found a few things that did have an impact, and they might seem downright amazing to you. So let's keep in mind that, again, the original study focused on men. It later got expanded. And here is some of what they found, because there are going to be a lot of references to men. I'm going to read you a, a long passage from, from George Valent uh, from his book, Triumphs of Experience. And I might interject here or there for clarification, but here we go. So I'll let you know when we are at the final end of the quote. Here's what Valent writes. The men who had good sibling relationships which they consider one factor of a warm childhood. The men who had good sibling relationships when young 
were making an average of $51,000 in 2009 dollars, $51,000 more per year than the men who had poor relationships with their siblings or no siblings at all. So if my sister is out there, I hope I was nice enough to you when we were young. And um, all of you out there, thank your siblings if you are doing well. The men from cohesive homes made $66,000 per year more than the men from unstable ones. Men with warm mothers took home $87,000 more than those men whose mothers were uncaring. The 58 men with the best scores for warm relationships were three times more likely to be in who's who and their maximum income between the ages of 55 and 60 in 2009 dollars was an average of $243,000 a year. In contrast, the 31 men with the worst scores for relationships earned an average maximum salary of $102,000 a year. That's less than half. A warm childhood if you had one, if you were one of the had one of the warmest childhoods in this study, two hundred forty three thousand dollars a year in two thousand nine dollars on average, in contrast with a hundred two thousand. All these guys went to Harvard. The twelve men with the most mature coping styles reported a whopping three hundred sixty nine thousand dollars a year. The sixteen men with the most immature styles a much more modest $159,000 a year. These same variables were equally able to predict warm relationships at the end of life. Isn't that amazing? You start out with warm relationships in childhood. If you look around and you're getting older, and you say, well, geez, I don't have warm relationships now. How was it in childhood? Or if you have them now, how was it in childhood? The study this is Valen again, the study found some facets of adulthood in which a good relationship with one parent or another exerted the more important influence. As the men approached old age, their boyhood relationships with their mothers were associated with their effectiveness at work. But their relationships with their fathers were not. A man's maximum late-life income was significantly associated with a warm relationship with his mother, as was his continuing to work until 70. His military rank and his inclusion in who's who were also marginally significantly associated with a warm relationship with his mother, even your performance in the military. A warm childhood relationship with his mother was significantly associated with a man's IQ in college and, more important, with his mental competence at 80. Isn't that astonishing? Warm relationship with your mother when you're a little kid correlates with your mental competence at 80 and your IQ in college. Continuing with Valent here, a poor relationship with his mother was very significantly and very surprisingly associated with dementia. For example, of the 115 men without a warm maternal relationship who survived until 80, 39 of them, that's 33%, were suffering from dementia by age 90. Of the surviving men with warm maternal relationship, only five, that's 13%, have become demented. That's a significant difference. In the Grant study, dementia has not been significantly associated with vascular risk factors. One senior colleague of mine insists that this finding must be wrong on the grounds that no one has noted it before. He forgets that 75-year prospective studies are as rare as hen's teeth. 
Only time or replication will resolve the matter. None of these issues were even suggestively associated with the quality of the man's relationship with his father. So, there you go, Cosmic Mother, Sophia Knows Best. <laughs> that should have been what the show was called, Sophia Knows Best, or at least Mother Knows Best. Father Knows Best, no. But, of course, there were things that were important. This is all Nikos <laughs> sticking some words in there. But uh, back to George Valen. Valen says, warm relationships with fathers, but not with mothers, seem to enhance the men's capacity to play. Men with warm paternal relationships enjoyed their vacations significantly more than the others, employed humor more as a coping mechanism, and achieved a very significantly better adjustment to and contentment with life after retirement. Counterintuitively, it was not the men with poor mothering, but the ones with poor fathering, who were significantly more likely to have poor marriages over their lifetimes. All five of the men who reported that marriage without sex would suit them had poor paternal relationships, but these men were evenly distributed as to the adequacy or inadequacy of their mothering. Men with good father relationships also manifested less anxiety, a significantly lower standing pulse rate in college, for example, and fewer physical and mental symptoms under stress in young adulthood. Men with poor father relationships were much more likely to call themselves pessimists and to report having trouble letting others get close. And good father relationships very significantly predicted subjective life satisfaction at 75, a variable not even suggestively associated with the maternal relationship. Nonetheless, a mother who could enjoy her son's initiative and autonomy was a tremendous boon to his future. Okay, that's the end of Valence summary of a lot of the findings. Wow, isn't that remarkable stuff? Warm relationships, especially with our family of origin, includes siblings, includes our father, includes our mother, very importantly. It's the whole ecology. All of that correlates with a potential doubling of our income. A warm maternal relationship correlates with a dramatically reduced risk of dementia. This is mind-blowing stuff. And warm relationships in childhood predict contentment all the way into old age. Not just contentment, but well-being, our actual health. Now, we could engage with this data in a variety of ways. And here's the thing. There's some subtle stuff that's at work in our culture we might say something like this. If a person has a healthy relationship with their parents, and let's add siblings too, they very well might make more money. And, you know, Valent is reporting this economic data. And the thing is, of course, he's, he's, he's not saying that I'm, we've done all this just to show you how you can make more money, but the, the whole way we're looking at this does feed into a pattern of thought that treats relationships as objects to collect, possibly for the sake of getting other things we desire. And we default to this pattern of thought all the time. It's a crucial factor in the conventional success of countless wealthy people. They had connections. They enjoyed relationships that empowered their capacity for conventional success, including making money. That is something we really have to grapple with. Now, at the same time, we could turn this pattern on its head and we could conclude the following. The purpose of an economy is to foster vitalizing relationships. Functionally speaking, we don't do that. We, we do the re reverse, really. When you think about it, we take the purpose of an education as the improvement of the economy or improving our economic prospects. A person goes to college to help them establish a career. And this goes together with 
such a confused notion of what a university is that we now think it a bold or honest intellectual stance to assert that, well, college isn't for everyone. We can only spout such nonsense when the meaning of education, including a college education, has descended into sickness. When university education fails to feel satisfying to all citizens and fails to resonate with them as a common good, that's a problem. Actually, it's a crisis. Again, the authors of these books don't advocate cultivating relationships so we can make more money, but the point is the study inquired into these things, and Valen is reporting these differences in income only because that's of interest to us. That's the cultural context we have. We live in a cultural context in which this style of thought gets applied to education and vocation. Our parents consistently discourage their children from pursuing interests that offer no obvious pathways to wealth. People will say with disdain to university students, well, what are you going to do with that major? Wait tables? In other words, if the value of something in the marketplace doesn't accord with our values, what we think is truly important, People expect us to put the marketplace first. Moreover, because of the deep confusions and unskillful practices of our culture, the dominant culture becomes filled with ignorance and resentment, and people begin to say things like, well, I shouldn't have to pay for your child to go study French literature or indigenous studies or whatever they were studying. If they want to do that, they need to pay for it. This is the kind of thing that people will say. And so keep in mind, I'm, I'm criticizing that. I'm not saying that French literature is stupid or that indigenous studies is not important. I'm, it's quite the opposite. And when we have that kind of resentment and, and dismissiveness and, and even disdain, we're rejecting the real finding of this study on happiness and the good life. And the authors are are not trying to make a case for the value of relationships by considering economic factors alone. But we have to keep reminding ourselves, value as a concept got colonized by a certain style of consciousness, conquest consciousness. And that style of consciousness now includes what we think of as economic thought. And so the value of relationships almost inevitably gets discussed in relation to income. We're putting a price on it. That's not even possible in some cultures. But none of this gets us yet at the bigger, more central problem with the Harvard study. Waldinger and Schultz come closest to the key finding that seems functionally absent, ignored, or misunderstood, when they write the following, quote, Relationships are not just essential as stepping stones to other things, and they are not simply a functional route to health and happiness. They are ends in themselves, close quote. Now that gets us closer, but ultimately fails in many ways. Here's how we could better put the finding of the Harvard study. This study didn't verify the importance of relationships as a kind of thing we can think of as either a stepping stone or an end in itself. Rather, this study verified that life is fully and completely relational that we are not so much human beings as we are dynamic patterns of relationality, flowing patterns of primordial awareness. The whole cosmos is relationality all the way down, sacred, wondrous, inconceivable, and quite frankly magical relationality. 
And maybe that magical dimension is part of what explains some of these supposedly puzzling findings on, say, dementia and IQ and all these other elements, right? And that interwovenness, remember, at the beginning, we talked about how they were referring to the brain as the most complex and mysterious system. Well, that's just not accurate. If it's relationality all the way down, you can't isolate the brain. That's not the system that produced the huge incomes. The system that produced the incomes was not some fellow's brain who went to Harvard. It was his childhood ecology. It was the system of his mother, including her brain, but also including her smile and her eyes and her breathing. And it was his father and his siblings and the whole of his upbringing. All of that, the food he ate, the air he breathed, the bees, the grasses, the birds, all of it. And the authors fall into the error of talking about relationships as if they are things that we can collect, the same as they talk about a brain like it's the complex system. These are just mistakes. And, and these are super intelligent guys. I don't want to belittle them or dismiss them. We're trying to be honest about the confusion that our culture has. So when really bright people running a really important study make these very basic sorts of errors, we know we have a challenge. We're not in a situation where we're thinking relationally. We have fundamental confusions about how the world works and how the good life can be established. And I'm just pointing out that it's in the darn study about the good life. The errors are right there. And the core finding then is missing. Even to speak of cultivating relationships, that makes sense to us. They wrote it because it's a sensible sentence in this culture, but it, it misses the mark. Or consider this. Here's what the authors write. Quote, Achievement is most meaningful when it is relational. And they put italics on relational. Achievement is most meaningful when it is relational, they say. And the wisdom traditions teach that when it comes to wisdom, if we miss by a hair's breadth, just the width of a hair, if we miss by the width of a hair, we've missed by a mile. And we, we can maybe argue about how many hairs away that sentence is. Achievement is most meaningful when it's relational, but it is definitely miles off because there is no non-relational achievement and there is no non-relational meaning. And this has nothing to do with getting abstract or pedantic. We're being very concrete and precise. It's just to acknowledge. If you say achievement is most meaningful when it is relational, that's just a mistake. There's no such thing as a non-relational achievement, and there's no such thing as a non-relational meaning. If we don't have clarity about that, we don't understand what the study is telling us, and it's not going to be as helpful. It will not be as empowering for us and this culture and the world that depends on us to understand the nature of the very world we live in. If we could understand the Harvard study as revealing the inescapability of relationality, we could carry the findings much further and use them to inspire us to create a truly healthy society. That's why it's important to get some clarity about it. And what we find in this study seems to have a lot to do with our failure to thoroughly understand relationality. And unfortunately, that ignorance then spills over into all the media coverage. It's been nice. They talk about things that are fuzzy and warm and we feel good. Oh, make friends. You know, Call your brother you haven't talked to. You love your children. That's important. My goodness, if we just didn't if said only that, love your kid. Give them a warm childhood. That would be wonderful, but there's a lot we're leaving on the table that we need to get clear on. And because these lessons would come as a paradigm shift, then we can't even make sense of all of them. That's part of what I'm saying. You know, it's not that these guys are are, are not intelligent, Waldinger and Schultz and, the, and Valen. It's that when it comes to a paradigm shift, you know, like Isaac Newton would think of quantum mechanics as nonsense. He wouldn't talk at all in the ways that we talk about the quantum world or even the relativistic world. 
He's never going to say that you can go running around with a ruler and it's going to get shorter the faster you run. And that's the kind of difference that I'm pointing at when I'm talking about that that quote, achievement is most meaningful when it's relational. No. It would be like Newton saying, well, you know, of course time and space are fixed. They're absolute. And the answer is no. It doesn't seem to be. Now maybe we'll have some post-Einsteinian world where something else will happen, in fact. But as of now, no. We verified that that's not true. And so similarly, this is just a kind of Newtonian sentence. Achievement is most meaningful when it's relational. No, that's not the world we live in. And so some of, the, some of what we need to understand is just kind of nonsensical a little bit. We, don't, we can't quite get our minds around it. And, and that means that reason and emotion can take offense at such lessons. We can get reactive the real lessons we need to learn can arrive in such a way that they at first can provoke a great deal of defensiveness and reactivity, even scorn, and even, in fact, aggression. And to understand all of this a little bit further, I think the the juicy thing to do would be to consider some examples of the kinds of things that we might have to consider if we saw the Harvard study as support for the fundamental relationality of life. And that's what we'll do in a second contemplation. So for this one, we just wanted to point out, here's this big study, all the attention it's getting, and we're missing the core finding. It's not even in the study itself, because it doesn't seem to be within the paradigm that we're trapped in. And that paradigm that we're trapped in is causing us suffering. We need to get free of it. And so the next time, I think it'll be in in a way even more exciting to consider some of these examples and, and what I would think of as some of the most interesting and challenging aspects of the implications of the Harvard study. And so I hope you'll join us. I'm really looking forward to thinking through this life of ours together with you next time. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things because they're totally relational. So take good care of them.